Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello, and welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Paul Solis from Biari Networks. Paul, tell us a little about yourself. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Uh, so yeah, my name's Paul Sulish. I'm the CEO of BRE Networks. I've been with BRE for almost eight years. I'm a, I'm a telco guy. I've been in telcos almost my entire career. Uh, clearly not started in America. I'm an Aussie that relocated about three years ago. So I'm still allowed to live here, which is a great thing. But uh, a lot of my career has been around building teams, building and scaling teams and various organizations. Before BRE, I did a few turnarounds, fixing teams that weren't working right, fixing projects, deployments, all the way through to doing what I'm doing now. And that's really bringing a company that pivoted to something significant on the global stage. Mainly telco, I'm an engineer by trade, so I can get technical. I'd rather not, I'll leave that to the super smart people. But uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been an amazing journey. And a lot of my career has also been working with entrepreneurs and founders. So that uh, relationship is quite special and it's, but it's a lot of fun. But yeah, that's the short version. That's great. So are you, would you consider yourself like a specialist, like a company or a team is underperforming they say we we need to make a switch at the top what about paul he's really good at this or are you better at growing something that's your own from the bottom up so i did initially i did a lot of more changes or turnarounds from small teams little a teams or tiger teams in larger organizations troubleshooting projects and i think that that was in line with opportunities that were afforded to me by managers and leaders i worked for when i was a lot younger where they saw that engineering style of brain or critical thinking, problem solving was useful. So that was a lot of that earlier in my career. And with BRO Networks, it was very, I think I was number 13 or 18 employee when I started, when we pivoted. And now we're just over 150 global. So yeah, this has been one of those first words to build something almost from scratch, particularly with the style of company that we are. So we did start our journey as an enterprise software company and pivoted to tech enabled services. And now we have that plus a SaaS offering, but that's taken, I think we're about 12 to 13 years old. So it's been quite the journey. I'm very proud to say it's always been fully bootstrapped. It's been a, a great journey and I feel very honored and privileged to be part of this and being able to grow this with a, an amazing team. Have you been in organizations where it's been debt funded? Like obviously you're bootstrapped. I'm curious the difference. I think the biggest thing for us has been eyes on the cash at always. We could only, in terms of growing, we could only grow as as far as we could turn a profit. So I think it drives a certain behavior. Earlier in my career, I did work for big organizations, big corporates that had a lot of money that they could throw at stuff. And I didn't really have to sweat the cash side of things too much. We didn't have to so justify decisions or anything like that. In, I have in former lives, but it's different where the, there was debt funding and they could extend beyond the reaches of what was in the cash balance to, to make things happen. So we did that particularly with debtors. And when we had subcontractors in building networks, I did many years, I constructed networks. That was very different to this where it's, okay, we want to grow next year, but how do we generate the cash to do that? How do we generate right. the cash? to go and hire people to keep scaling this business. So I found like with the bootstrap model, 
there are far more constraints that you need to work through and with. And again, you've got to keep your eyes on the cash to make sure you can you do it. You can do everything you need to do, starting with paying all your people. It's interesting though, to come to you. So I come to you with a project and say, I think this would be a great project. Do you then say, just show me where the funding is going to come from. How are you going to produce revenue? We can't just take on every boondoggle. Is it that simple that I have to bake that into any proposal I come to or any offering, whether it's a, I need to hire three new people for my team or whether I've got a second or third product idea. We're in a fortunate position now where we built up enough of, of a treasure chest to speculate and do things that took a long time. Yeah. It takes uh, a while. It takes a while to build up the cash reserves to then speculate and place bets. But I think we always had that philosophy of, okay, is this the right kind of bet considering the amount of cash we do have? So we still do that. It's just, we have a lot more room to play with right now. It is a lot easier ever since we hit product market fit with a few of our key product lines. We're in a better position to, to speculate, try new product ideas, explore other markets, which is what we're doing currently. And we've learned a lot of hard lessons from the beachheads that we've undertaken so far. The US was a beachhead for us. We started as an Aussie company trying to crack the US so that we learned a lot of lessons from that that we're now taking to other parts of the world, namely the UK. We're opening an office there now. Uh, we'll be going to Germany next. So you learn a lot and you try to make sure that the organization remembers the what it took and what's important as you grow. Wow. So how then, you're on multiple continents even, how do you measure scale or define scale for your organization when you have different, I would imagine at least culturally different business operations in Australia, UK, United States, it's gotta be a little bit different. How do you, is there one metric that you measure scale? Yeah, we, from a scale perspective, we roll that up to revenue and that's the main metric is are we actually revenue and EBITDA being bootstrapped, EBITDA has always been important for us to make so making sure that year on year, the growth is 20 plus percent. And, and, that's, gross, and that's gross revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then in terms of, and then it's been EBITDA over, over years, it's been, how do we come out to a point where EBITDA is significant, substantial to keep fueling the growth. So that they were the key metrics from a, that we look at from a global perspective. And then in terms of the other side of that is people, right? And to your point, we've had to hire people on multiple continents. We have staff in Australia, we have staff in Vietnam, in the Philippines as well, as part of our production in the U S obviously, and now the UK. So then it's a matter of, okay. What is, how does the resourcing part of that fit into it as an, that equation of scaling? What does that look like? So through COVID, I think we're 20%, including resourcing. Like we, we grew as an organization, even though we were in lockdown globally. There are some, the other part, the, I suppose the benefit of our approach, because we are tech enabled services and we utilize cloud-based infrastructure, cloud-based computing, it's a lot easier for us to scale globally, have remote workers. So the whole shift to hybrid work from home was pretty natural for us and our teams globally. Uh, we didn't see, we didn't have the impacts that other organizations around us had. Uh, right. So that was a little bit easier for us to navigate, but that, I would say they're the key metrics of that matter to us. And it's, again, it's that sustained growth, particularly in rev and gross revenues, and then keeping an eye on our EBIT on a year to year, making sure it's trending in the right direction. No, that's great. So you're bootstrapping it. You're the 13th employee and you're on this growth journey, was there a pivotal event or an episode or a period of growth where you say, you know what, now we get the little hockey stick and we get a big inflection up, or has it just been slow and steady as you go? Yeah, I think it's sort of both. A little in column A, a little in column B. 
the when I joined, as I said, it was a pivot point in the company. Enterprise software, suddenly they want to do services, which was a different proposition. We couldn't really utilize the same existing technology to fuel the services business that was there for enterprise software. So, so a, that was, it was a huge change. It was a product pivot. It was, and it was product and market driven. So the market at that time in North America, we had a client say, we love what your core product does. However, we want you to deliver outcomes. We don't want to use the product. We just want the outcomes that it delivers, which is geospatially <laughs> accurate designs. Can you just generate them for us? So we, that, that was foreign. We're like, hang on, we're a software company and you're we're a software not, company. We love you, but you're fat and ugly. And so, yeah, but you get me, if you want me, I'm fat and ugly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, at the time, fortunately, the founders saw that was the way they could potentially break in and have a solid beachhead into the US market. And this was a massive, globally recognizable brand. So it wasn't like a little... It wasn't, uh, it wasn't first small client. Yeah, it was a huge client. So we're like, actually, for them, maybe we should do it. So yeah, so that was a catalyst. And that was one point. Now, at that point, though, they had to invest heavily in that, really, almost like a startup within a startup, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of energy and resources being thrown at that to see if it would work. Uh, so that was, I would say that was an important point in our journey, understanding what that meant and that investment being made by the company, the founders to reinvest a lot of the revenues coming out of the enterprise software back into the business to do that. I would say the other, the main inflection point occurred when we actually found product market fit for that product, which was design services. So uh, above and beyond the monster client. Yeah, that was, and because they were like, Hey, we want, if you do it for us, then we'll give you all this work, which was a good start, but you're right. We had to go out and find other clients to see if right. actually this is a real thing, or is this just a one and done? Right. It wasn't years down the track, three and a half from that point or thereabouts where we saw others saying, yeah, that actually is appealing. We want that as well. So we just, we found a way to leverage that learning and say, you know, what if we stack of these style of customers that will always do these style of projects as they're trying to bridge the digital divide in North America and other parts of the world and leverage this technology and us as the go-to for these services. Once we stacked four or five, it made sense. And that's when we started to see that inflection point. Yeah. Uh, and we found a similar inflection point when our, our platform, our SaaS platform actually got product market fit. When we started getting good adoption rates, that in itself, you could see that started to really work for us as well and gear in our favor. And that was a combination of not only repackaging and really understanding from a marketing perspective, what this product actually was as from a, from a customer perspective, but also getting the commercial model. So there was a few things that took a few years to navigate and nail down to, to make it work. Sure. Was, I would say that was the key inputs to those inflections points that we've seen through our journey. No, it makes great sense. So you're SaaS based. How much do you focus on, or maybe even obsess on churn if you're SaaS based? So for the SaaS business, we don't obsess too much with it right now. When we change the commercial model and to be, to be frank, we had to adjust our pricing significantly upward because we were giving away too much value. And to share with you that experience, we looked at that saying, we expect a certain percentage of churn because it's going to be a shock to a lot of our customers that use this platform. But what was really encouraging, John, was that there was a number of those in themselves as SaaS companies, and they were actually congratulating us on that move. And I ran into a chief marketing officer at a conference and he said, congratulations, you figured out your value and kudos, like we get it, do what you gotta do. So it was interesting, we had a few, but literally a small number, like single digits that were a little bit unhappy, 
the most part we get it, it's not great. And then there was those that understand SaaS and have brought products to bear. They're like, well done, congrats. You, you found your value. It was quite interesting when we got that then point. You kick yourself and say, we should have done this two years ago. Oh, totally. All of us were like, man, why did we do this? We should have just gone all in. What were we waiting for? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's funny. So you've been a, a 13 years, I imagine all kinds of things have happened. And this was not, this is not your first company or your first episode or your first foray into business. If you take your career in business, was there a specific episode or brick wall that, that really presented problems where you had your head handed to you? I find podcasts talk about, oh, here's our success journey and go, I, that's not so helpful. It's like everything, a Disney movie, and it always ends up happy and say, uh, what, what happens when you have to persevere? But have you had a particularly tricky either period or episode where you had a big tuition to pay and you also got learning that helped you late later on? I think I've had a stack of them throughout my career. I think, <laughs> like small, medium, large, and extra large. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And it, I think that's just growing, right? It's, I think that's trying and pushing yourself beyond what you think your capabilities are and you test the boundaries and oftentimes you fall on your face. Could so, you share a specific one? It's, it's, I, we hear from more yeah. and more from the audience. They say, those are helpful because I'm running into challenges too. Am I just an idiot or should I persevere? It's, it's a good question. Yeah, pr probably you're both, but that's okay. I think it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Early in my career, when I was running a, an arm of a construction company in telecommunications, one of the biggest lessons I learned was I wasn't paying enough attention to subcontractors. Uh, and there were, we had one subcontractor that was really going all out and they're going above and beyond the scope. And I didn't really like that. Billing for it. And billing us for it. And I didn't lock it down quick enough. So that was a very expensive lesson to learn when we pushed back way too late on what they were doing. And this was um, your responsibility to be watching all this. Totally. It was totally my responsibility. The founders are like, dude, you can't do that. They gave me a massive slap across the head and said, don't do it again. And I understood what that meant. So that was the first, that was a big one. I think the other more recently, it's always been around having that, that self-awareness to understand what my weaknesses are or what, you know, if you want to call it trailing strengths or whatever you want to call it, it's something sure. you suck at to be blunt. It's, if I suck at this, then don't try to patch it, go and find someone to compliment you that does that really well. And, and I think that's, them. yeah. Yeah. And I found that is one of the bigger lessons I've learned is I, got, I should focus on those things I'm good at and focus on the key things. Keep the, understand where the constraints of the business are and try to unlock those things, remove those constraints. Don't focus on the little things. The other, and part of that came out when I was not long after that other, maybe four years after that other episode I had. I changed to another company and I was making just bad decisions. And I was in a matrix organization. I had two bosses. It was pretty painful and I wasn't deciding quick enough. And then I was making bad decisions. And one of the directors said to me, he said, you got to afford yourself the time to think. And that really stuck with me all these years. That was, more than, yeah. it was more than a decade ago, if not more, way more than that. But it was something I remember and I reiterate not only to myself, regularly, but also to my team and to my kids. Um, you've got to afford yourself the time to think like I was a hamster on a wheel in some crazy projects and never took a breath. And eventually it comes back to bite you trying to, so it's when I failed that mantra is when I failed. Like when I haven't had 
giving myself the time to think. It goes pear shapes. So do you know, do you calendar that off and block out time for that? Or how do you do that? Are you going walk? That's, ex that's exactly what I have to do, John. If I don't block it out in my calendar, it doesn't happen. And I learned that lesson going pretty deep in early COVID times where I had a little bit more time to think, forced that way in, in amongst the craziness that was that period. But that's what I have to do. And if I don't do it, then I really struggle. I can't retro fit it in my calendar either. If, if I set a calendar for Monday and then it's halfway through Monday, it's all over. There's no right. way I can shoehorn that in. It's too late. Right. Yes, I put it in my calendar. Typically, it's at least two weeks ahead. The other thing I do is I, I do that. I try to do that in line with exercise. So uh, yeah. that works really well for me. That's my thinking time. So when I go to the gym or I'm running or riding, I usually like to do those things alone because I can think. I'm not distracted. Yes, I know a stack of people at my local gym. But they know that I don't like to talk. I just like a wave out of courtesy. Like, Let me do my thing. I'm in the zone. Don't talk to me. Uh, right. This is my time to set my brain straight. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. It's interesting because it's, it feels like the further we progress with technology, this idea of slowing down and calendaring and you can call it planning or thinking or whatever you want, but blocking that time, it seems like that's getting to be the most valuable skill there is in leadership. And yeah, it's amazing how few people do it. 100%. And look, the other hard lesson I learned, which is in line with that, was I listened to a great podcast by featuring, I think the guy's name was John Lenoir, and he was, or Lenore rather, and he, uh, he talked about energy management versus time management. And that really resonated for me because what I was struggling with was I was pumping so much energy into work, I had nothing left for my family. Yeah. My family were getting ticked off with me. And I know when I don't have that balance right, because I can see the warning signs. Initially, it's like amber flags going up with my kids and wife, and then suddenly it becomes red, um, and then come the cannonballs. I think when I wrap my head around that, and I'm very mindful of, I've got to manage my energy throughout the entire day in all the roles I have, I've become far more effective. Yeah. And Isn't it interesting as well that there's portions of your day that actually give you energy, even though they're work, and there's others who just go, oh, God, I got to do payroll. Oh, yeah. geez, don't, please don't make me do that. And it just, it's a, even a small thing, the dread of it for three yeah. hours, knowing it's on your, right after lunch, and then the hour it takes you, and you just go, that wrecked my day. And you go, it was an hour. It's not, it's, it doesn't have, and you did four hours of whatever, whatever gives you energy, people facing or collaboration yeah. or whiteboard session or solving problems. And you just say, yeah, morning was really easy. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting. I suspect that a model will take more effect as people start looking at this because yeah. this whole, I find it a silly conversation about work-life balance because you or I are in charge of it, but so much of it is about, I don't spend enough time and you go, what are you doing 80 hours a week? There's just, if you're, if there's that much of that job, then it's for two people or a person and a half, get some help, but, or you're incompetent. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you look at other people and say, how do they get, how are they a CEO of a publicly traded company? And they seem to be at Jackson hole at a conference and they're <laughs> noting and they're, they're playing golf. It's not, how are they doing that? They get the same amount of time and think, okay, then this is not a time. This is not a time thing. So. Yeah. I think being brutal, like ruthless with your calendar is a huge thing. Is it really, is it something I absolutely must do at that point or not? Yeah. And is it for me or does it just have to get yeah. done? Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, I can send somebody else to do it and they'll do an 85% job and I save all that time and I, 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're building teams and I, I know you pride yourself on having a really robust culture at Biari. Is it easier to scale people or is it easier to scale products? That's a really good question. I've never that's had like, that question. I saved it for you. I thought not everybody can handle this one. Yeah, Paul, Paul takes thinking time. He's probably figured this one out. He's probably thought of this one. There's, I think there's a tight linkage because you need the people to think and scale in align with your products. If you're, I feel like if the people don't have the, if you don't make space for them to think more broadly, to scale the product suite, to scale or to think outside of core, it's not going to happen. So I think they have to happen. In terms of how easy it is to scale people, I think that really depends on the kind of people that you hire. Do they know that those that are coming in, do they know that part of their job is to be, to think beyond what we do now? One of our core values is the freedom to innovate. And that's something as part of our other core values, we celebrate on a quarterly basis. It's really critical that people have, we provide the time in their day to day. That's part of the job to innovate. So without that innovation, I think it's a lot harder to scale, particularly new product offerings or evolving your products. So I think it's a combination because some people, they're very good at massaging what's already there, right? They're really good at just honing in and making things really efficient, which is fine for just standard growth, but not necessarily scale. So you need to balance with people that are okay going outside the confounds, right? It's going over the wall and saying, it's okay. We don't know enough, but it's got, we'll be fine. So I think you need a balance of those people as well. Uh, I know that there's a few great models out there that sort of articulate the differences of those kinds of people. And I think you need that mix because too many of one or the other, you're either not innovating, you're not going to scale at all. Cause all you're doing is polishing your car to make it even shinier that no one cares about versus running it off the racetrack. Cause you don't care about safety because you're going crazy with it. So I think it's a balance. I think there's a there's, you got to hold the tension between those two that I think part of my role is to hold that tension because again, it's not for everyone. Scaling is not for everyone. So, so I think that's important to hold that in balance and intention to get the most out of that ecosystem you're trying to build, but knowing enough about your people to know what their, what their happy place is really helps, right? If you don't know what they're capable of or what they're good at, what they like doing, and obviously you've tried to garner as much of that as possible before they're in, they're important things. No, it's great. You segued into the next question I wanted to ask. You you have very well established and acknowledged and you reward and notice your core values. How much of them are front and center in the hiring process to act as repulsion for somebody that really wouldn't thrive in that organization or as a magnet for people who would? Yeah, it's there. I think it's in the first or second interview it's discussed. And when it comes to leadership positions, we typically ask those candidates to also do a presentation on what it means to them to see mm -hmm. if there's a synergy. Values are really important. And people these days, I find John, that people want to be part of something that is special to them, that they can align with, they, it resonates with them of who they are. So alignment with what the vision and the purpose of the companies is critical. So. That, that's another thing we screen for and we try to make sure that they're in it for the same reasons we are. We're getting up first thing in the morning to do this thing as a team for all the same, in the same way. So yeah, I'm fully behind that purpose. Let's go. So we screen for that pretty hard as well, because if we find if we're aligned as humans, at least as my view, if you get the right kind of human alignment, you can almost do anything. But I think it's important to take the whole human into consideration, not just this person went and did this degree. 
they have this experience. Who are they as a person? Are they, is John a good human? What makes John a good human? That's, we find that's. Don't they would, they'll tell you. If you talk to any of my grade school teachers, <laughs> yeah, they won't be my references. That's for sure. But if you find them, yeah, I'm out. I'll stop looking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What else should we freeform? What else do we know about scaling from your experience that I haven't asked about? I think one of the analogies I use often, particularly with people that are technical, and a lot of us did this in high school physics, there's a latent heat of fusion, right? You're pumping all this energy in. When you're boiling water, like you just got to keep heating the stuff up. Eventually it turns to gas. Boils and then it turns to gas and there's that tipping point. I find scaling a lot like that. Every glass ceiling you blast through, you're just pumping energy into this thing with the belief and the faith that you're going to blast through it. When I look at our scaling journey, it's been one glass ceiling after another. Just when you think you've peaked for whatever reason, or you think you're hitting a glass ceiling and you can't break through, you just got to keep, you got to keep the faith, so to speak, and keep putting energy in. If it's showing signs, right, you don't want to be flogging a dead horse, but I think it's important to keep that in mind that it's, uh, it's not easy. It's not for everyone. And it takes a lot of energy. And so energy and momentum, I think that's the other big lesson we've learned is it's just a momentum game and to build momentum coming back to physics, it's mass times velocity. So once you get that, you're growing the mass of the company with great people. It's going to be easier to push that flywheel. We developed our flywheel a while ago now, and it's something we reference pretty regularly, a couple of times a month at all hands. We keep talking about our flywheel and how we all have to do our piece to push it. And the team does a great job of trying to understand what's holding that flywheel back across all the business functions and how they feed into that flywheel. The other, I suppose, one of the bigger lessons is find frameworks that are useful for everyone to understand. We can geek out on all kinds of crazy business frameworks, but you want something that almost, if not everyone in the company can understand and align to. So we typically, as a leadership team, will look for things that not only work for us, but work for everyone. And the flywheel is one of those concepts that we found works for everyone. That's helped us scale for sure, because we know every year we're looking at this thing so often and trying to refine it and push it faster. And that also speaks to the fact that you can't just give it one push, right? You can't, you're not going to just try stuff once and that's it. So. I think that's part of the scaling story is, and that energy, you just got to keep pumping energy in and keep watching what happens to make sure that, yeah. And sometimes you see that you're about to break through other times. It's a, you're very lucky, right? You get lucky with what's happening and with market dynamics and things that are completely out of your control. So finally, I think it's, you want to have a great, and again, just to come back to Jim Collins, return on luck is a huge thing. It's looking for opportunities, being on the outlook and knowing what it looks like when it hits you in the face is critical. And being able to read them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Even when people say, oh, that doesn't sound right. It's like, hang on, let's dig a little bit deeper and think more broadly, strategically, four or five moves ahead. What could it mean? I think that's critical to scaling. Because if I look through our journey as well, John, there's been projects that you would argue on face value we shouldn't have touched. Whether it be a product project, maybe a customer wanted a certain feature or a, a service that we delivered for a deployment. You could argue that on face values like this doesn't fit with what it is we do. And I think part of what we've tried to instill in our team you know, is but what is it bigger than just that? What else is there? Is it a step in the right direction? Is it aligned with our longer term strategy? Having those sort of open communications and being very authentic to what is it and what it's not. Extending that to the client 
which is almost something I don't see many people do. It blows my mind, but I found and my team has found the more, you know, we are authentic and with what it is we do and what we don't do with clients. It's amazing how much work we get eventually, even though initially directly there was nothing with that client. Our whole history is you could look at all these little thin threads of meeting someone that eventually turn into multi-million dollars, right, of work. So leveraging those opportunities when they're right there and saying, yeah, I should just go and meet you for who knows why, because we just get along great all the way through to, I can't help you, but John here knows ex he's exactly the guy for this. Let me introduce you. And I'm of the view that that comes back. So yeah. I yeah. think they're the big lessons, the bigger ones that I've found have been very helpful for us. No, that's um, great. That's great. Okay. So and, and, that's, and that's, sorry, John, that actually crosses across cultures as well. So yes, there's a cultural nuance, but it's something that works, right? Being a good human globally just works. And that's, I think that works really people well can, for People can tell. They can yeah. tell when it's phony and they can tell when it's authentic. Yeah. Last question, we have a little fun. Our theory is that in junior high, seventh or eighth grade, we would have been able to go to Vegas and bet on Paul later in life, buy a future, uh, say oh, 30 years from now, would this guy be in this role or not? What were the signs in junior high school that you might be close to where you are now? Who were <laughs> you as a junior high school? Because we picked that time because everybody's got braces and pimples and they're in, yeah. in puberty. It's an awkward time, you think. Okay, if you can see it there, you should be able to, which we, how could we have missed it? But who were you in junior high school that would have foreshadowed, oh yeah, yeah, this is no surprise at all that he turned out this way? Yeah, a really good question. And I've thought about this and it's interesting in junior high, which in Australia is like the start of high school. Yes. It's, high school, it's junior and senior combined. So I was, I was very introverted. I was very much into maths. So problem solving, I felt like I was only really good at maths. I was terrible at English or language arts, as you call it in the US. English was my second language. My kids still give me a lot of flack for not knowing all kinds of basic English stuff. So yeah, that was part of it. I also, and I, I think this is relevant. I always thought I knew stuff, but I wasn't that great at anything. I didn't really have any ego. I also got along with everyone and I think there's and I'll expand on the first thing. I often say these days that I still love being the dumbest guy in the room. I think having that humility has helped. It's like I actually don't know anything. I'm just going to put you in touch with people that do. And I often say now I know a guy. <laughs> it's helped. So that's, that's a thing. I think that humility was always there from junior high. The, so that's, I think that's one of those things that really, when I think back was Maybe there was something that you could link to what I'm doing at that age. If you asked me when I was that old, what I wanted to be, I would have said engineer. Yeah. I want to be an engineer. Yeah. That's it. And I really didn't know what that meant, but that's what my dad was. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. And the other bit was I got along with people. So I went to a school that was extremely multicultural and this was a time in Australia where, you know, the borders were very open to skilled labor. So Australia was flooded with immigrants from all around the world of skilled professionals. So I had the, the pleasure of going to school with almost every, every country was there represented. Right. Yep. What happened was there was this typical kid segregation, right? So there's all the Australians and there's all the Europeans and here's all the, the Asian people. And so what we, there was this, that's just the sort of herds that were there. And what I found was 
they couldn't quite and there was and there were some conflicts right there were these are I went to a, an all boys school, so there was just too much testosterone. So there was a lot of fights and stuff. And I got a, I was, I got through that unscathed because they couldn't figure out whether I was an Australian because I had at that time I had long blonde hair, or I was a European, even because that's what well, my heritage is Polish. But they just couldn't figure me out. So I was like Switzerland. I was on the fence. <laughs> Everyone liked me. They didn't have any other reason to ex- suspect I wasn't a good person. Did they like you or not dislike you? I think they just didn't dislike me. Like right? they, they just know what to do with you. Yeah. yeah right. no, just, up. He hasn't done anything to us. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. He seems fine. So it seems okay. Think, he doesn't bother us. Yeah. Exactly. And I, exactly. So I think thinking back, I think that was the other thing that I've always been pretty good at just getting along with people being very yeah. tolerant. A great um, skill. It's completely so, underrated, but it's a great skill. Yeah. yeah. And one of those exercises I've done with my team is understanding what your strengths are and things like that. Like tolerance comes way up there for me. It's extremely tolerant, not only of different backgrounds and stuff, but generally as a human. So I think that also thinking back was one of those things I remember. That's great. Super but, transferable um, skill too, to be the CEO. Yeah. It's, and look, that whole, again, I was really introverted. I really didn't come out of my shell until college. I don't think I wasn't saying too much before then. And then it was a college professor that basically said, oh, by the way, you're going to speak at a symposium full of 1500 engineers on a topic that I'm going to assign to you. <laughs> My head exploded because I'd never done any public speaking or anything. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, I got to get, you got to get rid of this fear. And I'm like, oh, anyway. And I think that was another, I was very lucky. He just said, you'll be fine. Yeah. You, you won't die. You're right. He's you won't die. You won't die. You, you'll think you're dying. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that but, I got over that hurdle when I was in my final year of college. Yeah. Oh, that's Which great. Helped. That's great. Paul, the only way people can learn this stuff is from people who've done it. I'm convinced you can't, there's nothing linear about this. That's everybody has a different journey. And, and so your stories and your wisdom and your insight, super helpful. Really appreciate you being here today on Genius at Scale. And to our audience, till we meet again, all the best. Thanks, John. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.